choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 337 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 15, Lunar Module Pilot James Irwin, and Commander David Scott. Today we continue our biographical episodes for Apollo 15 with the life of Jim Irwin. James Benson Irwin was born March 17, 1930, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His parents were James Irwin Sr. and Elsa Matilda Irwin. Jim was of Scottish and Irish descent. His grandparents immigrated to the United States from Altmore Parish at Pomeroy in County Tyrone, Ireland, around 1859. At about the age of 12, Jim informed his mother about his desire to go to the moon, letting her know that he might be the first person to do so. He ended up being the eighth. When I was just a a little boy, I looked at the moon and it had such a fascination for me. I just knew it was going to be possible for me to go there. So I told our neighbors, but they all laughed at me. I told my mother and father and... They were somewhat amused, but then my mother said, son, that's foolishness. Man will never be able to do that. That's impossible. She said, just forget that. She said, I want you to do something worthwhile with your life. So she obviously didn't understand my desire to go to the moon. She did encourage me to learn all that I could. And I moved around a lot as I was growing up. I lived in Pennsylvania for the first 11 years. Then we moved to Florida, then to Oregon, and then to Utah. So I came to know a lot about our country as I moved around. After the moving around, Jim finally graduated from East High School in Salt Lake City, Utah in 1947. I was always fascinated with airplanes. When I had my first ride in an airplane, I knew I wanted to be a pilot. I had the opportunity to go to the Naval Academy, and there I began my flight training. Flying became such an obsession in my life, I, I decided I should try to fly as quickly as I could. And I elected to transfer into the Air Force, which is forming that they're looking for young men to become officers and pilots in this branch of service. In fact, Jim received a Bachelor of Science degree in Naval Science from the United States Naval Academy in 1951, and a Master of Science degree in Aeronautical Engineering and Instrumentation Engineering from the University of Michigan in 1957. He received initial flight training at Hondo Air Base and follow-on training at Reese Air Force Base, Texas. The Air Force trained me as an interceptor pilot and they sent me to a very special base out in Arizona where they were testing many different types of aircraft. And that's when flying 
really became an obsession where I'd rather fly rather than eat or sleep. I want to fly every airplane I could. I want to fly high and fast. My mother didn't understand that either. She wrote me a letter. She said, son, I just don't understand why you must fly airplanes so much. But then she gave me some advice. She said, if you must do that, just remember to fly low and slow. <laughs> but I didn't listen to my little mother because I thought I knew a lot more about airplanes than she did. No, I was going to fly high and fast, but I knew that's where all the excitement was. That's where all the glory was. So I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a test pilot. I could fly everything. But in order to do that, you have to go to a special school out at Edwards Air Force Base. So every year I put in my application. But finally, after 10 years, I was finally successful. I think the Air Force tried processing all the paperwork, and I finally said, oh, wait, everyone, it's your turn. And that was a great day in my life, because, well, it seemed to be the answer to prayer, because I just spent three years behind a desk at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base to be released from that desk go back into the sky. And to go to Edwards, because it's always exciting at Edwards, particularly at that time, because Chuck Yeager, the first man to fly fast than the speed of sound, was there at the test pilot school, to be able to meet him and fly with him. Then the famous rocket airplane was flying there too, and setting new records on almost every flight. So it's just exciting to be there. And it took me a year to learn how to become a test pilot. I graduated, and then they assigned me to be that first. Irwin graduated from the Air Force Experimental Test Pilot School in 1961 and the Aerospace Research Pilot School in 1963. Prior to joining NASA, he was chief of the Advanced Requirements Branch at headquarters. Air Defense Command. During his time in the United States Air Force, he received the Air Force Distinguished Service Medal and two Air Force Commendation Medals. He also received an Air Force Outstanding Unit Citation while with the 4,750th Training Wing. Irwin was eventually assigned as a developmental test pilot for the Lockheed YF-12, the Mach 3 fighter interceptor variant which preceded the SR-71 Blackbird. His first flight of that aircraft was on the day that one of his five children was born. For several years, the only test pilot in the world's highest and fastest flying airplane, the YF-12, a plane that set the speed in Alger, the United States, a few years later. Oh, oh, how lucky to be on that project. I don't really remember that project because they only built three of these airplanes and two of them crashed. There's one remaining in the Air Force Museum down in Dayton. There was the forerunner of the famous Blackbird, the SR-71, which well, they just recently retired at also. Everything I've ever flown is in the museum. They're probably sending me there pretty soon. But you know, these airplanes fly faster than 2,000 miles an hour, faster than three times the speed of sound, about 90,000 feet. I'm the only one in the project. So you know how proud I was. But the only problem was it was such a secret project, I couldn't tell anyone what I was working on. I couldn't tell my wife or our children, and I couldn't tell my father or father. But I knew inside it was very important, so I was proud. But then tragedy struck for Jim Irwin. In 1961, a student pilot that Irwin was training crashed the plane they were flying on a training mission. They both survived. But Irwin suffered compound fractures, amnesia, and nearly lost a leg. John Forrest, a U.S. Air Force orthopedic surgeon, was instrumental in preventing the amputation of Irwin's leg. Perhaps I was too proud. It was early one morning. I had a horrible accident. I was instructing a student in a light airplane, and we crashed. 
And I don't know exactly what happened because I still have a memory loss from that accident. But I do recall that the student was a big man, and I think he must have panicked just after we took off. Grabbed the controls, we released them. So I couldn't get control of the airplane, just plunged into the desert. Unfortunately, when it struck the desert, it did not catch on fire. And the rescue crew was able to get out of the wreckage, and they pulled our bodies out. And we were both unconscious. And they didn't attempt to treat us at Edwards, they airlifted us. Pulled down to March Air Force Base, which had a larger hospital, where they could properly put us back together. And when I came to it, wasn't long before the medical team came to my bedside and gave me the report. They said, Urban, you're in bad shape. They didn't even tell me that, I knew that already. And then they told me of my injuries. They said, both your legs are broken. Your jaw's broken, you lost many teeth, you got a concussion. Your right leg's so badly shattered, you have to amputate your foot. He said, Irwin, uh, we don't think we're going to be able to fly again. I don't want to give you all that bad news at once. That seemed to be bad psychology. You can just imagine my reaction. I thought I was completely destroyed. I wondered, what would I do with my life if I couldn't fly airplanes? It was a very difficult time in my life as I tried to adjust to this situation. And I did pray. The first prayer that was answered is circulation was restored to my right leg, so it wasn't necessary to amputate my foot. So I could walk again. If I don't walk as well as I once did, at least I could walk. The greatest miracle, I was given another chance to fly. I had to wait two years for that, to build myself back up, and finally I was given another chance to go back into the sky. And they assigned me back to my old project, the YF-12A, but now I'm no longer the only one, because they've given up on it. Science of all this should take my place, so I had to go back down to the bottom of the ladder and begin my climb. All over again, you're proving myself. But finally I got to the point where they let me fly the fast airplane. But by the time I flew, it was now obvious the man could grow much higher and faster when he got 12 for ESR-71. As Irwin's military career was ending, he had accumulated more than 7,015 hours flying time, of which 5,300 hours were in jet aircraft. But his greatest success was still to come. And I thought, boy, I'd make a great astronaut. Because I have all the right qualifications, all the right stuff. I have the right graduate degrees, the right flight experience, and the right desire. But I must have been missing something because they kept turning me down. And finally, when I got to the age limit, I gave up. I asked the Air Force if they would reassign me to Air Defense Command Headquarters in Colorado Springs as the F-12 project officer. And the Air Force was kind enough to do that. Colorado Springs was a nice place to live. In fact, I was resigned to spend the rest of my Air Force career behind a desk. But then in 1966, I learned we were still looking for a few more astronauts, so I put in my application. But I wasn't holding much hope. But that was the year that I was selected. And then we had to move from Colorado back to Texas, and now Houston becomes our home. Irwin was one of the 19 astronauts selected by NASA in April 1966. His first assignment was as commander for Lunar Test Article Number 8, an environmental qualification test of the Apollo Lunar Module in a vacuum chamber at the Houston Space Environmental Simulation Laboratory. He then served as a member of the astronaut support crew for Apollo 10, the first mission to carry the full Apollo stack to the moon, and the dry run for the first crewed moon landing. Following that assignment, Irwin served as backup lunar module pilot for the second moon landing mission, Apollo 12. Then, he was chosen as lunar module pilot for Apollo 15. Traveling back and forth across our country, visiting all the contractors building the parts of our spacecraft, traveling from Connecticut to California, 
then traveling around the world to understand geology, the earth's going to relate to what we're flying on the moon. But it took five years to get ready for that flight. And you might say, boy, it's a long time to get ready for one flight. Well, it is, but the time went very quickly because there was so much to learn. Between July 26th and August 7th, 1971, as the Apollo 15 Lunar Module pilot, Irwin logged 295 hours and 11 minutes in space. His extravehicular activity on the moon's surface amounted to 18 hours and 35 minutes of the mission time. An additional 33 minutes was used to do a stand-up EVA by opening the lunar module's docking hatch to survey the surroundings and take photographs. Apollo 15 was more science-based than previous missions, which meant Irwin and Scott received intensive geological training to meet the demanding nature of the J mission profile. This extra training is credited with allowing them to make one of the most important discoveries of the Apollo era, the Genesis Rock. Uh, it's interesting that the rocks that we did find on the moon, including the, the Genesis Rock, are uh, much older than the rocks found on Earth. But we expected that to be so because the earliest, the oldest rocks on Earth have been removed by the effects of erosion, water erosion. See, on, on the moon we have no water, so the very ancient rocks are still very obvious. They're still there to be uh, Selected, discovered, documented. Uh, the uh, the white rock, the Genesis rock, has uh, an age, an apparent age, and I stress apparent, of about 4.15 billion years old, plus or minus 0.25 billion. Clearly, about a half a billion years older than the oldest rock found on Earth. It's also interesting, and I didn't point it out, that just after we found the white rock, I looked over my shoulder and there sat a beautiful green rock. And we brought that back too. And it turns out to be much older than the white rock. So it should have been called the Genesis rock. But that green rock is about one billion years older than the oldest rock found on Earth. It goes back to the very beginning of time. And for me, that discovery of that green rock is really significant. Because my father was Irish, and I was born on St. Patrick's Day. I'm surprised they didn't call me Patrick. But you know, for an Irishman to be able to find a green rock on the moon has to be significant. <laughs> Apollo 15 landed in the moon's Hadley-Apennine region, noted for its mountains and reels. As a J mission, the astronauts spent more time on the moon than previous missions, which allowed for three EVAs. During the EVAs, Irwin became the first automobile passenger on the moon as Dave Scott drove the lunar roving vehicle carried along for this mission in the lunar module's descent stage. Like some of the other moonwalkers, Jim Irwin had a profound experience while on the lunar surface. Irwin described the experience in one of his books saying he felt the power of God as he had never felt it before. Well, that's true because I, I felt his presence there. Uh, and some people question in their mind when I use those words, but I don't know any other words to properly describe the feeling because it was just like there, someone else was there. Uh, you know, there was answer to prayer. There was guidance, guidance as far as finding this very important rock. And then the inspiration 
constant inspiration while we were there. Irwin's stay on the moon was just under three days at 66 hours and 54 minutes. After leaving the moon and the rendezvous procedure was completed with the command module, Irwin and Scott began moving items like rock samples into the command module and preparing the lunar module for final separation. During this intense period of work, the earliest symptoms of a heart condition appeared. Both Scott and Irwin had been working with no sleep for 23 hours, during which time they conducted a final moonwalk, performed the ascent from the lunar surface, rendezvoused with the command module, and encountered the problems that delayed the lunar module's jettison maneuver. The astronauts' physiological vital signs were being monitored back on Earth, and the flight surgeons noticed some irregularities in Irwin's heart rhythms. Dr. Charles Berry told Chris Kraft, the deputy director of the Manned Space Center at the time, that the rhythm problem was serious, and if Irwin were on Earth, he would be in the intensive care unit being treated for a heart attack. However, Berry concluded that Irwin was currently almost in an ICU environment since the command module's atmosphere was 100% oxygen and he was at zero G and he was being continuously monitored. So it was the best they could do at the time. During the post-trans-Earth injection phase of the mission, there wasn't much for Irwin to do other than provide help with Al Warden's EVA to retrieve a film magazine from the command service module Simbay by donning a pressure suit and monitoring him. Irwin was able to rest and apparently recover during the rest of the mission. The flight surgeons continued to monitor his EKG until splashdown, but his heart rhythm became normal. This incident was not discussed during the mission debriefing sessions, and the condition did not appear when he returned to Earth. Irwin retired shortly after Apollo 15 as a U.S. Air Force colonel in 1972. So when I came back, though, I realized that I should make room for other astronauts to fly. I had my opportunity, and I was thankful. Irwin then founded the High Flight Foundation. He spent the next 20 years as a goodwill ambassador for the Prince of Peace, stating that Jesus walking on the earth was more important than man walking on the moon. He said that his experiences in space had made God more real to him than before. Irwin and his second wife, Mary Ellen Monroe, who he married in 1959, stated that his Christian rebirth, which happened during Apollo 15, saved their marriage and made their lives much happier. Irwin had married his first wife in 1952. The two had an unhappy marriage made worse by Jim's devotion to his work. By his own account, the marriage failed after two years due to his poor, borderline cruel treatment of her. And he later stated that finding religion again made familiar relationships much easier. In fact, Irwin had five children, Joy, 
Jill, James, Jan, and Joe. Beginning in 1973, Irwin led several expeditions to Mount Ararat, Turkey, in search of the remains of Noah's Ark. In 1982, he was injured during the descent and had to be transported down the mountain on horseback. The search for Noah's Ark, is there still, is that still continuing? Or what are the uh, prospects of finding that? Uh, I'm still hopeful that we'll be able to find evidence of Noah's Ark. Uh, I don't think it's been found yet. And I know that we have not. I don't think that we have found it. We found some uh, interesting new evidence just this last summer. But we were unable to get up on the mountain because the day after we arrived in eastern Turkey, the war broke out in Iraq, so we were denied the opportunity to walk on the mountain. But another group was able to operate a helicopter around the mountain. They found some interesting things up there that need to be followed up, probably with a ground party ground search. Unfortunately, they wouldn't allow the, uh, the helicopter to land on Mount Ararat. They would let them fly around but not land. It's unfortunate. I think we need that ground search capability. So maybe that'll happen this summer. So efforts continue to find, make this great discovery. Irwin suffered four major heart attacks during his life. One occurred less than two years after Apollo 15 when he was 46 years old while he was playing handball. He was immediately given emergency triple bypass surgery and he recovered. Two months later, he suffered a subsequent heart attack after skiing in Colorado. And in 1986, Irwin suffered yet another heart attack when he collapsed during a run and was found without a pulse on a curb. Doctors from NASA doubted the incidents were related to space travel and noted that pre-flight testing indicated a tendency for cardiac arrhythmias during strenuous exercise. Then, on August 8, 1991, Irwin suffered yet another heart attack after a bike ride. Attempts at resuscitation were unsuccessful, and Irwin died later that day at the age of 61. He was buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Of the 12 men who walked on the moon, Irwin was the first to die. The James Irwin Charter Schools were founded in Colorado in his honor. Irwin was given numerous awards and honors. I will list just a few. Air Force Distinguished Service Medal, NASA Distinguished Service Medal, United Nations Peace Medal, City of New York Gold Medal, City of Chicago Gold Medal, Air Force Association's David C. Schilling Trophy, Robert C. Collier Trophy, Haley Astronautics Award, and the Arnold Air Society's John F. Kennedy Trophy. He was awarded an honorary doctorate of astronautical engineering from the University of Michigan in 1971, an honorary doctorate of science from William Jewell College, an honorary doctorate of science from Samford University. He was inducted into the International Space Hall of Fame in 1983, and posthumously into the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame on October 4, 1997. Now let's move on to the commander of Apollo 15, Dave Scott. David Randolph Scott was born on June 6, 1932 at Randolph Field, 
for which he received his middle name, near San Antonio, Texas. His father was Tom William Scott, a fighter pilot in the United States Army Air Corps who rose to the rank of Brigadier General. His mother was the former Marion Davis. David lived his early years at Randolph Field, where his father was stationed, before moving to an air base in Indiana, and then, in 1936, to Manila in the Philippines, which was then under U.S. rule. David's father was a strict disciplinarian. The family returned to the United States in December 1939. By the time of the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, the family was living in San Antonio, Texas again. Shortly thereafter, David's father was deployed overseas. It was felt that David needed more discipline than he would receive with his father gone for three years, so he was sent to the Texas Military Institute. David spent his summers at Hermosa Beach in California with his father's college friend, David Shattuck, after whom he had been named. Determined to become a pilot like his father, David built many model airplanes and watched with fascination war films about flying. By the time of his father's return from the war, David was old enough to be allowed to go up in military aircraft with him. To young David, this was the most exciting thing he had ever experienced. Like so many astronauts, David Scott was active in the Boy Scouts of America, achieving its second highest rank of Life Scout. With his father assigned to March Air Force Base near Riverside, California, David attended Riverside Polytechnic High School, where he joined the swimming team and set several state and local records. But before David could finish high school, his father was transferred to Washington, D.C., and after some discussion as to whether he should remain in California to graduate, David instead transferred to Western High School in Washington, graduating in June 1949. After high school, David sought an appointment to the United States Military Academy at West Point, but he lacked the connections to secure one. Instead, he took a government civil service examination for competitive appointments and accepted a swimming scholarship to the University of Michigan where he was an honor student in the engineering school. And in the spring of 1950, he received and accepted an invitation to attend West Point. But Scott still wanted to fly and wanted to be commissioned in the newly established Air Force. The Air Force Academy was founded in 1954, the year Scott graduated from West Point. An interim arrangement had been made whereby a quarter of the West Point and United States Naval Academy graduates could volunteer to be commissioned as Air Force officers. Earning a Bachelor of Science degree in Military Science, Scott graduated fifth in his class of 633 and was commissioned into the United States Air Force. Beginning in July of 1954, Scott did six months primary pilot training at Marana Air Base in Arizona, 
He completed undergraduate pilot training at Webb Air Force Base, Texas, in 1955, then went through gunnery training at Laughlin Air Force Base, Texas, and Luke Air Force Base, Arizona. From 1956 to July 1960, Scott flew with the 32nd Tactical Fighter Squadron at Sosterberg Air Base, Netherlands, flying F-86 Sabres and F-100 Super Sabres. The weather was often poor there, and Scott's piloting skills were tested. Once, he had to land his plane on a golf course after a flameout. On another occasion, he barely made it to a Dutch base on the edge of the North Sea. Scott served in Europe during the Cold War, and tensions were often high between the United States and the Soviet Union. During the Hungarian Revolution of 1956, his squadron was placed on highest alert for weeks, but was eventually stood down without going into combat. Scott hoped to advance his career by becoming a test pilot to be trained at Edwards Air Force Base. He was counseled that the best way to get into test pilot school was to gain a graduate degree in aeronautics. Accordingly, he applied to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, and was accepted. I uh, got my start in, in this business here at MIT, as a matter of fact, or at MIT. I was uh, a young pilot in the Air Force and always wanted to be a test pilot. And they told me the best way to do that was to get a graduate degree. So I looked around and I'd heard about this school in Massachusetts and uh, applied for it and was fortunate enough to be selected and started my matriculation uh, under the uh, team guided by Doc Draver. And uh, I remember early on there was a lecture one night given by a fellow from Germany named Werner von Braun. And so a friend of mine and I went to listen to this, and he was talking about rocket ships. Now, I was, a, I was an airplane driver, and I remember when they announced the first uh, Mercury astronauts, I thought, monkeys. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, I, we went to this lecture by Werner von Braun. He had these pictures of these big rocket ships, and he said, we're going to send men to the moon in these things. And I hit my buddy and said, this guy's really wild. And, uh, but by, by gosh, sooner or later, I realized that Werner's philosophy was correct, and by golly, we did all that. But I, I enjoyed my days at MIT, I think, hardest I ever had to work in my life. But. Scott received both a Master of Science degree in Aeronautic Astronautics and the degree of Engineer in Aeronautic Astronautics from MIT in 1962. After receiving these degrees, Scott was stunned to receive orders from the Air Force to report to the new Air Force Academy as a professor rather than to test pilot school. Although challenging orders was strongly discouraged, Scott went to the Pentagon and found a sympathetic ear from a colonel and got his orders changed. And after I left MIT... I went out to the, uh, the test pilot school and spent a couple years there uh, doing what I thought I really wanted to do until I realized that I got pretty interested while I was here in school in space as opposed to aeronautics. 
In July of 1962, Scott reported to the U.S. Air Force Test Pilot School at Edwards. The commandant of the school was Chuck Yeager, first person to break the sound barrier, who Scott idolized. Scott got to fly several times with him. David Scott graduated top in his class. He was selected for the Aerospace Research Pilot School, also at Edwards, where those intended as Air Force astronauts were trained. There, he learned how to control aircraft such as the F-104 Starfighter at altitudes of up to 100,000 feet. In 1963, Scott applied to NASA to be part of the third group of astronauts to be selected. Scott intended only a temporary detour from a mainstream military career. He expected to fly in space a couple of times and then return to the Air Force. He was accepted as one of the 14 Group 3 astronauts later that year. About 1963, NASA advertised the selection of the third group of astronauts, and I thought, well, I, I really did enjoy the inertial guidance and other, other things I learned at MIT, and I thought I'd give that a, a crack. And I was selected in October of 63, and I went to, uh, to NASA as a, a young uh, captain at the time, fresh out of test pilot school and fresh out of MIT. Scott's initial assignment was as astronaut representative at MIT supervising the development of the Apollo Guidance Computer. He spent most of 1964 and 1965 in residence in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He served as backup Capcom during Gemini 4 and as Capcom during Gemini 5. And uh, there were a total of 30 of us, and they looked around to see who could represent the astronaut office in various disciplines with some background. And of course, I was fortunate enough to have spent a couple years up here working with people who ultimately uh, built the Apollo guidance system. And uh, matter of fact, Dick Batten was my thesis advisor, and I think the first course I ever had that I even knew what inertial guidance was, Walt Wrigley taught, and uh, Doc Draper was running the instrumentation lab where I did my thesis. After the conclusion of Gemini 5, Director of Flight Crew Operations Deke Slayton told Scott that he would fly with Neil Armstrong on Gemini 8. This made Scott the first Group 3 astronaut to become a member of a prime crew, and this without having served on a backup crew. Scott was highly regarded by his colleagues for his piloting credentials. Another Group 3 astronaut, Mike Collins, wrote that Scott's selection to fly with Armstrong convinced him that NASA knew what it was doing. Scott found Armstrong something of a taskmaster, but the two men greatly respected each other and worked well together. They spent most of the seven months before launch in each other's company. One part of the training that Scott undertook without Armstrong was riding the Vomit Comet, where he practiced in preparation for a planned Gemini 8 spacewalk. On March 16, 1966, Armstrong and Scott were launched into space, a flight originally planned to last three days. The Agena rocket with which they were to dock had been launched an hour and 40 minutes earlier. They carefully approached and docked with the Agena, 
the first docking ever accomplished in space. After the docking, there was unexpected movement by the joined craft. Mission Control was out of touch during this portion of the orbit, and the astronauts believed that the Agena was causing the problem. But that proved incorrect. For once they performed an emergency undocking, the spin only got worse. With the spacecraft spinning, there was a risk of the astronauts blacking out or the Gemini vehicle disintegrating. The problem was one of the craft's thrusters firing unexpectedly. The crew shut down those thrusters and Armstrong activated the reaction control system thrusters to negate the spin. The RCS thrusters were to be used for re-entry and the mission rules said if they were activated early, Gemini 8 had to return to Earth. On Gemini 8, Neil and I got in this tumble up there. We had a, a thruster stuck on. And in the Gemini spacecraft, you had only one hand controller. It was in the center console between the two crew members. And the guy on the left would fly it with his right hand, and the guy on the right would fly it in his left hand. Same, same hand controller. And we got in this spin up there, this tumble, and Neely was a boss, and he was trying to get everything situated and organized and get us stopped, and he had tried everything. And we'd been talking back and forth and try this and try that, every switch we could think of, every combination we could think of. And in a period of frustration like that, you, di you dig really, really deep into try something else. So Neil's doing all this with a stick, and he looks over at me and says, you try it. And I grabbed it, and I went like this. I said, I can't stop it either. Well, it's only one stick. Yeah. <laughs> And it ain't going to make any difference who's hanging on to it. But you get in a situation, and, and we both agreed at the time that it would be better for somebody else to hold on to the stick. You know? and, you know, I, and we didn't figure that one out for about three months. Jiminy you know? 8 splashed down safely in the Western Pacific on the same day it launched. In, in those days in Jiminy, there was great competition on who could land closest to the carrier with the computational capability on board. And they were getting down, you know, 12 miles, 9 miles, 6 miles, 3 miles. Boy, it was really great competition among the crews. Well, Neil and I still hold the record for landing furthest from the carrier. <laughs> we, we, only, we only missed it by 6,000 miles. <laughs> the Gemini 8 mission lasted only 10 hours. And the early termination meant that Scott's spacewalk was canceled. But Dave Scott had shown incredible presence of mind during the unexpected events of the Gemini 8 mission. Even in the middle of an emergency, out of contact with mission control, he had thought to re-enable ground control of the Agena before the two vehicles separated. This allowed NASA to check the Agena from the ground and use it for a subsequent Gemini mission. Scott's competence was recognized by NASA when five days after the brief flight, he was assigned to an Apollo crew and was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel.
Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 337 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 15, Lunar Module Pilot James Irwin and Commander David Scott. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released in two weeks on May 7th. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 166 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most pod catchers. Okay, had a few afterthoughts for this episode. We kind of ended in the middle of Dave Scott's biography. <laughs> well, it just seemed like a good stopping point. Uh, would definitely will complete his biography next week and he really did or has so far had a wonderful life and he really in in uh, watching the videos and listening to the audio he, he, he seemed like just a really nice guy i believe he is currently 87 years old now and he is the last surviving member of the apollo 15 crew so next time we will also cover the postal cover incident, as well as the pre-launch. So don't miss next episode. What a great crew this was. You had the experience of Dave Scott and the skill and intelligence of Jim Irwin and Al Warden. They had the opportunity to spend a long time training together for the mission. And, you know, I got the feeling they really liked each other. I know Scott and Irwin had a fairly close relationship, and they were friends. And speaking of Irwin, wasn't it sad that he died at the age of only 61 years old? That uh, heart rhythm problem just did not go away. Remember, he had triple bypass surgery and four heart attacks, the last one being fatal. And that was in 1991. Now, the audio clips I played of Jim were from a speaking engagement he did in 1991 in Hartford, Connecticut. That was just a few months before he died. I do want to apologize for the poor quality of that audio. It's kind of the best I could find. Now, he seemed to me just like a really super nice guy. And he wrote several books. I bought two of them. The first one was called To Rule the Night, and it was like his uh, autobiography. And I ordered this book used from Amazon, and it only cost, I think it was around $6. And would you believe, I got an autographed copy of it. I used one through Amazon. Unfortunately, it wasn't autographed to me. <laughs> Instead, it was autographed to Harold and Frida Schultz. That's a funny way to get an autographed copy of his book. Of course, that's not the first time something like that has happened. The second book I bought was called More Than Earthlings. Now, it is a small book written in 46 short chapters. It's almost like a daily devotional. Anyway, Mrs. SRH and I really enjoyed both books, and 
It seems that Mrs. SRH's interest in space exploration has grown greatly since she's been helping with the podcast. I really appreciate all the help she gives. She is just wonderful. I don't think I could do this thing without her anymore. Had one clip from Jim's 1991 speaking engagement that I couldn't fit in his biography. But it was so uplifting, and, you know, sometimes we need a little uplifting. So I thought I would just go ahead and play it for you now. As I've shared my life with you, see, it hasn't always been easy. There have been some difficult times in my life. I've made some mistakes. I've, I've given up at least once. I've fallen down. I've fallen down on the earth and I've fallen down on the moon. Maybe some of you have fallen down too. If you have, I want to encourage you to get back up again and continue to reach for your dream. And then you too will reach that point where you can reach out and help someone else. Lift them up and point them in the right direction. And you find life is very satisfying. Life is never easy, but life can be very satisfying when you reach out and help someone else. I hope you found that out already. So I've entered into that part of my life where I can reach out and help the people over there. So it gives me great satisfaction, a great joy to be with you, and to reach out and help you in any way I can. That clip coming so close to his death kind of puts a really nice bookend on his life, doesn't it? Okay, if you are enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption and you are financially able, and I want to stress that, stress that only if you are financially able, please consider supporting the podcast. For the past seven years, we've been entirely listener-supported. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Over the last fortnight, we have had several new contributions, and I would like to thank Bruce M. from Washington, who donated at the Starship level and earned a satellite emoji. Stephen S. from Germany sent in another donation and moved to the Orion level. Bruce C. from Washington donated at the Orion level. Enrique I. donated at the Orion level. Matthew F. from Tennessee sent in another donation and moved to the Orion level. John O. from Portugal sent in another donation and moved to the Soyuz level. Matthew S. from California donated at the Soyuz level. Bracken G. donated at the Mercury level. And Daniel S. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. That brings our total Patreon donors to 247. Our goal is to reach 300 by the end of 2020. Our total donors for 2020 have reached 321 with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, friends. You know what time it is. It's time for our drawing. The winner for this episode will get a choice of a space rocket history magnet or two coasters or two stickers or two static clings or two new holographic stickers. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Dave Hammer. Dave Hammer, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com 
tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we will mail this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 321 of you who have contributed thus far in 2020. My sources for this episode were NASA, Two Sides of the Moon by David Scott, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure's Not an Option by Gene Krantz, To Rule the Night by Jim Irwin, More Than Earthlings by Jim Irwin, Flight by Chris Kraft, and Wikipedia. Well, that will do it for episode number 337. Try to have episode 338 posted by Thursday, May 7th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.